Good morning. That's better. I, I, I was sitting in the middle of church, you know, I start thinking stuff, and I, and I should probably never say it, but I, I wish we could put the college group over here in the middle so you could all hear them. The volume that comes out of this side is amazing, and the song service just improves by just the sitting in this section over here. So I'm grateful for their zeal and their enthusiasm, and it's just a great group of people. And if you're in college and you're not sitting over here, that's fine. I mean, you can still come. We're not going to kick you out or anything. I just want to encourage you uh, to get to know these people because you're going to want to hang out with them if you do. Uh, Tuesday night, for those of you who are, oh, we're still debating the name of this. It used to be called Singles and Doubles. Now they're called the Young Professionals that are really actually young. That's what we want to call them. Um, that's the best title I can come up with so far. No offense to that older group above them. But anyway, they're going to meet at our house 6 o'clock for spaghetti but, uh, and salad and stuff like that. Uh, but afterward, there is a, a neat project we're doing, so be prepared to then go on the road for just a few minutes uh, and, and do some service kind of stuff. So it's going to be fun for them, and I just, uh, just remind them of that. Uh, also, Aaron Bell, where are you? Where's Aaron? He's here somewhere. Oh, hey, there he is. Okay, right there. It's me, not you. This is Aaron Bell, who's considering the resident ministry. He's from Houston. He's a ten Tennessee volunteer fan. So he needs conversion. So he's very seriously considering coming to work with us, and we're grateful that he's come for this weekend. And so if you get a chance, just attack him back there, or, or, or just, you know, get a chance to meet him. And that here, we're, I just, uh, there are so many people in the last week or two that have told me some heavy stuff that they're deciding and things going on in their life. We know people have lost loved ones. I want to have a prayer here for a moment. In the middle of this prayer, there's going to be this silent spot, not for a real long time. But what I want you to do is I want you to think in your mind of something. I'm not talking about stuff like cars and houses and stuff. I'm talking about think about something in your life that you really, really want God's attention for. Maybe it's to help make a decision that, that's weighing on you. Maybe, uh, maybe it's to help with a sin you're struggling with or a temptation that you're facing and you just don't know if you have the strength to overcome it. Maybe it's grief that's just threatened to totally overwhelm you. I don't know what it is. And it doesn't matter what it is, think of it. And that little silence, we're going to make it a community church prayer with your own concern in it that you don't have to say at all. But when we go to God together like a, a like mind and each one of us fills that little spot with something that's dear and, and something that's central to our lives, it becomes a communal prayer and gives some strength to it. And so let's pray together. And in that spot, would you please put whatever this thing is that's weighing on you. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to know that we have the, the total undivided attention of the Creator and the Sustainer, and we know who we're talking to, and we know that we can boldly come into your presence because through your Son, you made it possible. And you invite us so many times to, with that boldness, come in and ask whatever with confidence. And so, Father, we're going to take you up on that. We come before you, Father, asking for wisdom, Wisdom to know how to live our lives in, in a responsible way that reflects you and shares you with other people just in the attitude that we have and the disposition that we carry ourselves with in our work and in our families. We pray for our marriages, Father, because it takes a lot. It takes a lot to live out a faithful marriage and, and love each other and do the things that are important to sacrifice for each other. And I pray, Father, for our marriages. I pray for wisdom for parenting, the parenting calls that we have to make and the, and the things that we do and the, and the way that we influence our, our young people and, and even our, our grandchildren. Father, just give us wisdom to know what to say and how to say it. 
and how to love you and to teach them to love you too. Father, there are people who are on hospice. There are people who have lost loved ones. There are people who are facing struggles and difficult decisions and they just don't know what to do. And they're in this assembly and we all get together and we're going we're gonna to be worshiping you. And we've already done that. We're going to continue doing so. But Father, in the midst of this, we want to have a time where we can, just, we can just share our hearts with you. In the next few moments, you're going to hear a cacophony of thoughts. You're going to hear each one of our members share something important to them with you. And we, we ask you to take it as a communal prayer. Take it as many righteous people praying this request in your presence. And Father, do something about it. We're not going to dare tell you what to do. But we do dare to bring it to you and say, do something. Do something in us. Do something about this. And be our God. Thank you for listening. And thank you for whatever you'll do. May your will be ours. Through your spirit, because of your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 12. I know we're usually in Matthew, but last time in Matthew we talked about Jesus going against the Pharisees, and I have this, this lesson given as a youth minister a long time ago, and I just couldn't get it off my head after last Sunday night, and I decided I'm going to interfere with Matthew and go pick up Luke's context for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever, if ever invited someone over to your house for a meal, and then halfway through it you wish you hadn't you kind of say, why did I do this? Maybe, maybe it's because you had nothing in common at all and you sit there with this awkward silence, have no idea what to talk about. Isn't that weird to sit and not know what to talk about with somebody for a few minutes? That's why we invite different couples. Matthew's down here going, uh-oh. He's talking about last Sunday when he had us. At his... No, I'm not talking about Matthew. Matthew's great. Alicia's great. Adeline's great. There's no way you could not. Maybe... Maybe they're obnoxious and annoying and loud. Maybe they're opinionated. Maybe you're a Republican and they're Democrat. Maybe you've been watching Fox News and they're CNN advocates, and you're sitting here trying to eat your chicken without just, like, throwing your fork at them. I don't know what it is, but you're in the middle of a meal, and you're like, whoop, should have done that. I'm preparing for having Kristen Addison Brown today. We're grilling chicken for everybody but her. I fried a chicken leg for her. I thought that would be cool, and it's broken. Anyway, so, terrible. Jesus in Luke chapter 11. Now we're in 12, but I'm going to refer to 11. Jesus is teaching in front of a group, and suddenly a Pharisee, in the midst of his teaching apparently, or maybe toward the end of it, he stands up and says, I want you to come over at my house for a meal. I can just see it him saying, he's disagreeing with Jesus. He's wanting to teach him the way. Testing, testing, okay. He's wanting, he's wanting to correct him. He's wanting to impress him by inviting him to his house and telling him something that will just revolutionize Jesus. I didn't know that. And so he thinks, I'm going to invite him over to my house right after this teaching. And he does. And Jesus, as he walks in the house, skips the hand washing. This wasn't hygiene hand washing. This was the ceremonial, I'm being holy and pure in front of everybody, uh, elaborate hand washing. He just skips it. And immediately the Pharisee forms this opinion of Jesus and the attitude shows up on his face. Jesus sees the attitude on his face, knows what he's thinking. And just as he's sit down to eat, sitting down to eat, he takes over. Instead of being the guest, he becomes like a host and he starts attacking the Pharisees. He's attacking his host. Just terrible manners. This is etiquette we're all taught not to do. All those of you go have your kids in that etiquette class going on right now, that $500 etiquette class. This is total unetiquette. 
uh, this etiquette. Not etiquette. This is Jesus just blasting out. He stands up to these people and he says, you guys are so put together and you look so good and your hands are so nice and clean and manicured. You wear a nice tie and a suit. But you on the inside are overcome with lust and greed. And if I go to your house right now and watch what you've TiVo'd, I see a bunch of junk that shouldn't go in your mind. How is it can you can look so good on the outside, but in the reality of yourself, your inner man is nasty. He says, you guys, he takes a salt shaker and he says, see, you guys have tied this salt. You take one of each ten grains and you give it to God, right? And you make this elaborate show of putting your check in the plate. But you know what? You don't pay the people who mow your yard for two weeks. You hold them off and you hold them off. And you know what else? You're a lousy tipper at the restaurants. You guys aren't real at all. You love to hang out in prominent places looking religious and pressing everybody. But on the inside, you're so dead that when you go to your house, you're... <coughs> You're indifferent about people. You call names. You're racist. <coughs> Scathing words. Jesus is just obliterating them. And at one point, somebody who attends the meal, it's not the host, somebody gets up and says, don't you know you're insulting us? Oh, that wasn't the thing to do because Jesus looks at him and then he stands back up and he goes at it with three more woes. I mean, Jesus is scathing. He's on a roll. And then finally he leaves, and the Pharisee's like, whew, I'll never do that again. Then Luke 11 turns to Luke chapter 12. But while the chapter changes, Jesus' tone doesn't change. He now is in front of thousands of people. It says many thousands of people trampling each other. But Jesus, it says, is speaking primarily to his disciples. He says, I want to tell you guys something, because I've just been at the home of a Pharisee. And these guys are, are the ones that you respect the most and you view as kind of like the epitome of teaching. And, and you guys think they're good teachers. And I want you to be aware of the leaven. The leaven is the influence. I want you to be aware of the impact the Pharisees have on you. They convince you that it's all about the externals. They convince you as long as it looks good, it doesn't matter if it really is good or not. And he says, I want more for you disciples. When you follow me and you teach for me, I want more than that. And here we are hundreds of years later, and he's still saying the same message to the church, and it's still ever relevant as it ever was. It's still true, y'all. There is a tendency, and there's this trap for church people to look good to each other but not really be good in our lives. Be very careful with this. God wants more. Now, we are called to be holy, but we all struggle with sin. So quite honestly... Let's not try to fool each other completely. Let's be honest and say this. There is a little bit of hypocrisy in every single one of us. Our teaching is always better than our lives. That's just the way it is because we mean to do good, and it's just so often that we fall short. But hypocrisy, let me give you a definition. I wish I'd put a screen of this. This is a brilliant definition. When your behavior falls vastly short of your beliefs. Behavior falls vastly short of your beliefs and you grow complacent with the discrepancy. You're no longer fighting it. You're no longer trying to converge belief and behavior. You've signed a peace treaty that says it's okay if they're different. As long as I look like I believe it. That's hypocrisy, and the Pharisees have it down. And Jesus says, I don't want you guys to be this way. And so in this chapter, he gives a real powerful speech to his own disciples saying, I want more for you, and I'm going to give you some insights to help you to limit hypocrisy's power 
in you. So these are great thoughts for us, okay? Number one, verses 2 and 3 of Luke chapter 12. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. Now you have to debate this. Is he talking about everything's going to eventually come out in this life or in the life to come? And I think Jesus would say one or the other or maybe both. I, I, I don't know if it's Maybe this will help you. Here's the thing. Don't do or say anything that you wouldn't eventually want known because it will be. How many times have you said something about somebody else you never intended to get back and it gets to them and you're sent reeling trying to fix the mess and trying to get yourself out of this? How many politicians have thought they'll get away with this woman? Bill Clinton, one of them, right? But he's not the last one. It seems like every single one of them has these things that somehow they think won't get found out. Dick Cheney cannot go on a hunting trip, shoot a friend, and come back and nobody know it. It's not possible to happen. And these people who go to high-priced prostitutes online thinking if they pay enough it'll be secret and then somebody breaks in, hacks that site, and all these names come out, right? It's just you can hardly get away with anything. In the age of Facebook and people being able to have everything on video, everywhere you go you're being recorded, you can't get away with anything. So, don't do anything that you'd be ashamed of of people finding out because they will. Don't say anything that you wouldn't want heard eventually because it will be. This is true of all of us. And Jesus is simply saying there's never going to be total secrecy. Let me give you a a, a story. This is just weird to me. There was. How many grew up in small towns? I know some Bay people. Okay, Small town living is a little different. And Jonesboro's not all that big, actually. But I I grew up in a small town, and everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew my people. You know what I mean? They know your parents. And even if you think they don't know you, they know who you belong to. So if I was at school at 2.30 and cussed, I rode a bus home. It took about an hour to get home. If I drove, I cussed right before I get on the bus, and I ride the bus and I get home, as soon as I open the door, Mom is standing there with a belt with a scowl on her face. And I'm going, how did you find out? Come on, it's a small town. Everybody knows this. Kennedy's too. There was a family that took in this red-headed girl. Red-headed people all have tempers. Amen? Okay. So she has a temper. She has, she's known to be a person who's just kind of a, a confrontational person. And so this family took this girl in in her junior year of high school, and we were just applauding. This is a great thing, a great kid. Well, she had some rough edges still, and so they were putting some parameters on her to teach her what kind of being an ordered, structured person is. And so they said, okay, we're going to let you go with your friend to the movie theater. The movie theater in Canada is right on the square, okay? Town of 10,000 people, everybody goes by the square. So it's on the movie theater, movie theater on the square. She's going to go in the movie. They know when the movie's over, and they're going to come pick her up then. It's kind of a training and trust. She's waiting in line, somebody says something she doesn't like, and she hauls off and has a, and this girl could absolutely whoop up on anybody. She was tough. And they have an all-out brawl right there in the movie theater line on the court square in Kennett. Of course, everybody and his brother sees it, but she's sitting there thinking, okay, well, they, they kick her out. She can't go to the movie, her and her friend. They decide, okay, our parents don't know this anyway. We'll just walk around town. 
We'll just go walking around town and we'll come back at the time the movie ends and they'll never know. You think that's possible? There ain't no way. The people found out about it and went hunting them down. And she's like, how did you know this is a small town? Everybody knows us and you'll never get away with it. The story doesn't end there though. So I go down to Beaumont, Texas in a little church camp in the middle of nowhere, Red Oak Springs, and we do a retreat. And I talk about losing your temper and all that stuff. And I talk about this redheaded girl from Kennett and what she did. And I was just talking about how bad she was and awful. You don't want to be that way. A year later, this girl graduates, goes to Harding. She has a sweet mate that's from Texas. And when they meet, she says, my name is, says her name, and I'm from Kennett. She says, hold just a minute. You're a redhead from Kennett. I heard a story one time about a redhead from Kennett getting a fight in a court square and thinking they can hide. How terrible she was. And she says, that was me. <laughs> I can't even go to Beaumont, Texas and tell a story about somebody in Kennett without them finding out about each other. And she, she finds me the next time she's home and she's just, you know, uh, but I said, you were used for the glory of God, girl. You were used for the glory of God. Right? But I got to thinking, you can't even tell stories about people far away without it coming back. Jesus says, that's exactly right. So listen, don't do or say anything you wouldn't eventually want found out. And if you do that, you will not be hypocritical. He then moves on to the second point. I want you to see this. This is in verses 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. Notice the don't fear fear in this thing. Do not fear those who kill the body. After that, have nothing more they can do. I'll warn you whom to fear. Let me tell you who you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority on earth to cast into hell. Now, don't fear the one who can only impact this life. Who would that be? Don't fear the person who can only impact this life. That's everybody you've ever met. People, temptations, whatever. It only affects this life. He says, instead, I want you to put your fear on the one who can not only affect this life, but the rest of your eternal life. Now, who would that be? There's only one. It's God. He says, let's think about this. Who should you be afraid of? Don't be afraid of these other people. Be afraid of God. And that's what's weird. But then when he says that, he turns around and he says, uh, yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Fear don't fear. Fear, don't fear. Which is it? I'm going to tell you what hypocrisy, I think, is. We're afraid of too many things. I'm afraid of what my friends think, so I'm going to do this. I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of what my parents think, so I'm going to do this. I'm afraid of what my classmates think, so I'll do this. I'm afraid of what my, my church thinks. I'm afraid of what God thinks, so I'll do this. And that's something. We go around, and what we do at any given moment depends on who we're afraid of most in that moment. But what if you're in a situation where you have two of them pitted against each other? I'm afraid of what my boyfriend will think, so I need to do what he wants me to do. But if you do that, you will offend God, and you'll offend your parents, and you'll offend your church. So now in this moment, who are you afraid of the most? What you do depends on who you are afraid of the most. Are you afraid of your parents? Are you afraid of God? Or are you afraid of the boyfriend? We have too many fears. We're afraid of too many things. So Jesus says, let's make this simple. Fear only God. And everything will be easy. You don't have to worry about what environment you're in and who's. who's on. No, only worry about what God thinks. So he says, here's how you eliminate hypocrisy fear God, and you need not be afraid of anything else. 
including God himself. If you fear God, you don't need to be afraid of him. That's what he's saying in this passage. That contest on Mount Carmel, here's Elijah standing before the people saying, guys, hey, you want to worship Baal, do you? They can't decide. They don't want to offend God. You want to worship God? They can't answer because they don't want to offend Baal. So they say nothing. Too many of us say nothing. You need to say something. Who are you afraid of? The answer needs to be, I'm afraid of God. You set your foot on that and nothing else matters. I'm going to illustrate this. Uh, Trey. In the early service, I unwound from the top and all these old ladies come up and all these uh, mature members... They all come up and they say, don't you know, you can just take it right out the side and it's not, so it's going to be easy. Once you take this, once you walk out the, the doors. And when you're through the doors, go to um, Wendy's. <laughs> this is your life. Not anything profound about this illustration. I want you to listen real carefully, though. I got a pair of scissors. These are Levons. You can tell because they're a, a rocking pair of scissors. Colorful. Keep going. I want, and when everybody leaves, I want, yeah, just and take it all the way out to the end of the audit, the, and leave it in the, um, the farthest away classroom. When you leave, you'll be leaving a cause by this. Here's, here's your life. This is an example of your life. And, 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 but, but there's two things wrong with this picture, and I'll tell you what they are, and then you can imagine. The problem is wherever Trey ends up stopping, your life doesn't. The life doesn't stop. Eternal life keeps going. So this goes forever and ever. It does not stop. And, and I'm going to show you, this is your life here, but it's not near this big. If I were really accurate, it would be really small, but you couldn't see it. So for the sake of illustration, I have to make it longer. Your life here on earth in the physical realm is so small, so small compared to the eternity. Even Gary James is only like this. You've got a very small part that's lived in this life in the physical sense. And here's the thing that happens. People are so concerned about making this little part the greatest it can be. I want to have all the fun that this world says I should have. I want to be popular and I want to be well-known and I want to be liked and I want to have all the fun that it claims to, to have. And I want to make sure it's great. And in order for that to happen, I'm willing to compromise this. The character of God and the kind of God, the, the kind of nature God asks us to have. I'm willing to trade eternity in order to have a good centimeter. I'm so concerned with what people think about this little centimeter that I'm willing to trade eternity for it. There's a word for this, and when I wrote it on my Word document, it underlined it and said, This isn't a word. When you make a trade like that, when you decide that this life is all that matters really, and as long as this life is great, the rest of it doesn't matter, you're gypped. You know what gypped means? It means you made a bad trade. I remember as a baseball card collector, there was a girl down the street I really liked, and her brother collected baseball cards. And I thought, I'm going to get good in with this girl when I trade this. I had an Ozzy Smith rookie card signed with a proof of sign, because I was in line to get it. And so um, I traded that for some junk because I thought it might get her attention. I didn't even get a date out of it. That's the definition of gypped. 
Same guys, I had a Willie McCovey card. Anybody heard of Willie McCovey? You old timers will remember him. There's a, there's a cove out in San Francisco that's named after him. McCovey Cove. I had this thing, it was mint condition. It was one of those horizontal tops cards. And I had uh, this desire. I thought this guy was really going to be great. He played for the Cleveland Indians. His name was Corey Snyder. Anybody ever heard of him? His name is attached to a drive-thru uh, uh, car wash today in Cleveland. He was terrible. Never amounted to anything. But I've got five of his rookie cards that I traded for a Willie McCovey card. You know what you call that? You call that gypped. It's a terrible trade. And there's an awful lot of people in the world who are making a terrible trade. I'm willing to go against the nature of this God. I'm willing to offend God. I'm willing to do things that, that, that hurt his heart in order to make sure my little centimeter is comfortable, to make sure my little centimeter is full of fun, to make sure my little centimeter, I'm popular in it. It's not worth it. You do not need to do this. You'll get gypped. So he says, so he says, just be afraid of God and don't be afraid of anybody else. Jesus goes on to make the third one. And I'm going to go ahead and do that from here while I'm holding this string. Jesus says, if you'll confess my name before people, I'll confess your name in heaven, in glory. But if you don't, I won't. Let me give you a picture of what judgment's going to look like. God is going to stand before a group of people. Every person's going to come up to the judgment seat of God, and God's going to weigh your life. You're not saved by works, we agree with that, but you are judged by them. And so here is God judging you. He's going to take the total body of your work on earth, and he's going to look at it. He's got books that are written in very meticulous detail about things that you did or didn't do. And he's going to look at you, and he's going to enumerate and itemize all the things you did wrong and all the things you did right. And I don't care who you are, it doesn't do very well for you. You may be Joel Inman, who I'm glad you're back from, from Romania. You might be Joel Inman who made these trips overseas for God. But I'm going to tell you something. When you put the whole body of your work in, it's not all that impressive. Because if you have even one sin, he's going to slam down the gavel and say, sorry, you're out of here. But as soon as he's about to slam down that gavel, there's going to be someone stand up. It's going to be Jesus. And Jesus is going to stand up and he says, now hold it, Father. He trusted me. He lived for me. He is in Christ. He is one who was washed in the waters. He was one who lived for me. He stood for me, and therefore I'm going to stand for him. And when he does that, God's going to say, good enough for me. Enter in, servant, and you're going to go into heaven. Your only chance, get this, your only chance to get into eternity with heaven is if Jesus stands for you. You got this, right? Does that make sense to everybody? Now here's what Jesus is saying. If you want me to stand for you then, you have to stand for me now. And if you're backing down, if the truths about Jesus and his identity are embarrassing to you, and you're in crowds, well, people wouldn't be impressed, I'm kind of embarrassed, you're kind of a little bit timid and shy, you're not standing for him, or when everybody else is doing something, and you know that you should stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that, and instead you sit down, if you're embarrassed, if you're ashamed, if you don't stand for the truth when you need to, the corresponding truth is terrible. He won't stand for you either. Example in point, Stephen's preaching in Acts chapter 7. You know that long sermon. We're not going to preach it. He preaches this sermon about Jewish history, and it offends every Jewish listener. They are mad. It says they're gnashing their teeth at him. 
That's weird. We don't do that in our culture. I don't know how we express discontent with what's being said, but they would gnash their teeth, would be like, or something like that. So when they were mad, when they were really frustrated at what a speaker was saying, they would gnash their teeth, and it was a very ugly, visible expression that I don't like what you're saying. And Stephen was well aware that he was offending them, but he kept preaching that truth, and finally... And finally they stood up and said, we're not going to take any more of this. And they all picked up rocks and they stoned him. You know this story. But Stephen says this something important. He says, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's looking up and, he, and, and this didn't make them very happy either. They got mad at this and stoned him the rest of the way. But here's what he's saying. This is interesting. I want you to know, this is the, here's the gospel part of this story. You know the gospel, right? Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures, right? He was buried. He arose the third day, resurrection. But that's not the end of it. That's what we often talk about. But then he stayed for 40 days and kind of showed himself as resurrected. And then he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, God enthroned him. God put him on the throne. Now, later on, he's going to get up from that throne and God's going to sit there. But right now, Christ is on that throne. And he's at the right hand of God, seated. For the rest of time, he's seated. And the Hebrew writer makes it clear. His work's done. He's done everything that's necessary for your salvation. And so he's seated, except once. Acts chapter 7, where we see him standing. Why is he standing here? Because Stephen's standing for him. God takes notice. Jesus takes notice. When you stand for him, it fits in his head. And so G here is Stephen. No matter what the cost, these people, guys, are coming along saying, you keep talking about that, we're going to take your centimeter. And they did. They took his centimeter. But Jesus, in this vision, makes it clear to him, they got your centimeter, Stephen, but I got your eternity. I'll take care of this. You stood for me and I'll stand for you. If you want, as you leave today, just remember that. If you want in that final day, the day of judgment, for Jesus to stand for you, then listen, you can't live just any way you want to. You've got to stand for him here. You activate his stance by your own. There's one more thing he says. I want you to notice verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's a weird thing. Keep going. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, don't be anxious about what you should defend yourself with or what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I can see this being the main reason why we struggle with hypocrisy. You're put in a position where you just don't know if you'll have the words or not. You don't know how you'll do this. These guys, Jesus says, you're going to be put before earthly authorities who have the power of life and death over you, and the tension's going to be high, and the disciples are thinking to themselves, you know it, they're thinking to themselves, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can stand alone and defend you. I don't know what I'll say. I don't know how I'll compose myself, all that pressure. And Jesus says, hold the whole time out. You are never alone. I will give you my Holy Spirit. And my Holy Spirit will give you words and will give you composure and will give you calm and will give you comfort. 
And you know what? one of the things that's hurt the church the worst? We do not have a real good solid grasp of the fact of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We back down from too many things. I hear people say it all the time, well, I just don't know if I'll know what to say. I just don't know if I'll know how to act or what to do. Well, listen, why don't you trust that the Holy Spirit in that moment is going to give you what you need? We back away from things and we become hypocritical because we don't know he's right there in us. Learn to trust that the Holy Spirit is in you for a reason. His job is to make you witness worthy. And when the pressure builds, that's when he's at his best. But we bail before we discover it. And we need to ramp up our teaching on this. And guys, those of you who say, well, it doesn't really matter whether you really believe he's living in you or not. Oh, it does. It does matter. I remind myself, look in the mirror, I say, you've got God living in you, and don't you dare back down. Don't you dare back down. Just like that old song, right? But if I think that the only strength I have is the verses I've memorized, that's not a good enough strength. God's presence is given to you. Jesus said, I go to send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to guide you into what you should be living and doing. And I want you to know he's there, and I want you to put yourselves in positions where you trust he's going to come through. Hypocrisy will go away when you allow for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, Jesus gives one last thing. It's this weird blasphemy of the Holy Spirit everybody gets all caught up in. And this is a weird context for this discussion. Why would he be talking to people like you? We, we're, we're, we've decided, right? We're Christians. We're people, we're already following him. Why should we worry about whether we blaspheme the Holy Spirit or not? And here's why. Let's say I'm here and I'm a believer, but if I go and I walk my way back to those doors and open it, I become an unbeliever. I choose no longer to live the Christian life or believe it. How would somebody go from being a believer who's a follower and a disciple, to someone who gives it all up. And don't tell me it can't happen. There's too many examples of those who have. How does it get that way? When I allow hypocrisy to go unchallenged in my life, I think I'm playing this game. I think I look like I'm a believer, but I'm not really. But over here, I'm acting any way I want to. Each, each process of hypocrisy is another step down the road that will eventually lead to complete apostasy. The only way to prevent yourself from slipping on that rope is to attack hypocrisy at every level. Guys, I, there's a big discrepancy between what I believe and what I practice. But my goal in my life as I live longer and longer is to bring these two poles together as much as I can. And the ways that I don't, I repent and I struggle and I fight. But one of these days, it's never going to happen until the Lord comes when it all looks like this and the integrity is completely there. But listen, our job is to help each other stay in the battle of bringing these two things together as fully as we can. And in those times when we just show our lack of belief in our practice... We repent and we help each other to see the error of our ways and we help each other draw it closer. Jesus was trying to do that with the disciples. Don't go down the Pharisee path of getting comfortable with the hypocrisy in your life. Don't do or say, here's the summary of these things that he says. Don't do or say anything you wouldn't want to be found out because it will be. Fear God and then don't fear anything else. Stand for Jesus so that he stands for you. And learn to trust the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Jesus seemed to think that that would help his disciples be as authentic as they could be as teachers and people. And I happen to think that maybe Jesus was right and it will help us too. There's anyone in here who's never named the name of Jesus in front of a group. You've never confessed his name. Let me tell you something. When you need him to stand for you, he's going to remain seated. You need him to stand for you, and if you're going to do that, you need to speak his name. And so this morning, you have this opportunity to say Jesus is Lord and put him on as Lord in the waters of baptism. But if you've done that and you've slunk back, that's what the Hebrew writer says, you shrink back, you've shrunk back. You've stepped back, you're sitting you're laying down on the job and you, you're, not, you're no longer confessing his name. Listen, stand back up. This is the time for you to say, I'm going to stand back up. I'm going to repent of my sins and I'm going to take my stand and I'm going to stand in my place on the wall and be God's person. Whatever you need to do to be a more authentic disciple, do it now as we stand and as we sing together.